At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. They are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now, there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. The story of the appearance of Yahweh to Elijah at Mount Horeb is powerful and dramatic. I have always loved it. It is one of those great special effects stories of the Bible with the wind, earthquake, and fire rushing past Elijah as he hides in the cave. What a great opportunity for a podcaster to dip deep into a sound effects archive. But I always particularly loved it because God was never actually present in the special effects. God was instead present in the sound of sheer silence that just seemed to say so much more about how we might actually encounter God in this tumultuous world. And then there is the happy and uplifting part at the end of the story where God gives Elijah a friend and companion in the person of the prophet Elisha and encourages him by telling him that he's not as alone in his faithfulness to Yahweh as he thought. Yes, it just seemed to be this wonderfully positive story. But then I reread it recently, and there were some things about it that didn't quite seem so uplifting, that were a bit disturbing and, amazingly, oddly familiar. It's really all about how you tell the story. This is Retelling the Bible. Stop. 
episode 7.16 when you end up raving in a cave. Gentlemen, we begin this morning with a special report on the state of Yahwism in Israel. We take you live to the prophet Elijah, who is standing by to give us this vital information. Elijah, where are you speaking to us from today? Good morning, W. Scott, though I'm not sure how good it is. I'm reporting to you live from this cave on Mount Horeb, where I have hidden out because of just how bad things are. Look, I have been very zealous for Yahweh Elohe Tzebaot, but the people around here have gone woke and forsaken God's covenant. The altars dedicated to Yahweh are deserted. The sanctuaries are falling into disrepair. People are not sacrificing as much, and the prophets of Yahweh are no longer automatically given respect in society. We just don't get to do whatever we want anymore. And sometimes, when the prophets and priests say things that the society around them finds to be intolerant, they get cancelled, if you can imagine that. People do things like unfriend them on Facebook and unfollow them on Twitter. Why, these days it is as if I alone am left, and they are seeking to cancel me too. So, I have come on this major television network to warn you all that they are not letting us have a platform anywhere. Beware! Beware! Uh, okay, Elijah. Uh, thanks for the report. Um, I think I'm going to talk to the head of the network about getting you a few mental health days. Okay? We're all doomed! Doomed, I tell you! It is as if they are cancelling your way! We, uh... This seemed to have lost the feed from our reporter on the scene. Stay tuned, everyone. We will be back after this break with a report on King Ahab's latest cabinet shuffle. Once the television feed had shut off, Elijah sat there brooding. It just wasn't fair that he alone was left to do everything to protect God and his reputation in this world. He thought about all that he had gone through over the past few years. It had all started out so wrong as far as he was concerned when King Ahab arranged a marriage with Jezebel, daughter of the king of Tyre. As was normal, of course, she brought images of her people's gods, as well as priests and prophets with her, 
to the Israelite court. This kind of thing happened all the time, whenever a political marriage took place. But Elijah and a few of his friends decided that this time it was simply intolerable. He began a campaign to counter the queen's influence, arguing that any worship of any other god was an attack on the dignity of Yahweh. When an extended drought set into the countryside, Elijah frequently and loudly proclaimed that this disaster was not the result of climate change, but rather a judgment from God because some people were worshipping Baal. Using such rhetoric, Elijah had gathered a great number of the people together and worked them into a frenzy at a religious meeting on Mount Carmel. The people responded by organizing a boycott of anyone who was promoting the worship of Baal. And it was a very serious boycott. They did things like shoot at idols of Baal with their AR-15s. Elijah didn't really feel responsible for that. He had merely spoken the truth and carried out the sacrifice. How was it his fault what the people then did in their zeal for Yahweh? How was it his fault if some people got wounded or maybe killed when the people got carried away? But Queen Jezebel apparently didn't see it that way. She had sent a message threatening to cancel Elijah, perhaps even implying that she would cancel him right to death. And so Elijah had run for his life, and that was how he came to be hiding out in this cave. But it wasn't just any cave. It was a cave on Mount Horeb, the very mountain upon which God had appeared to Moses, though in some of the old stories the mountain was called Sinai. Elijah felt certain that God would finally appear to answer his urgent complaints in this place. Elijah waited a long time, but eventually he noticed a growing sound outside of the cave. This is it, he thought to himself. God is finally coming. The noise kept building and building. Before long, it was clear exactly what he was hearing. It was a mighty wind, a wind so powerful that it felt as if it could split mountains and break rocks in pieces. Oh, yes. Here was the ticket. Here was just the thing to destroy all of the people who were standing in the way of Elijah doing whatever he wanted. Yes, surely God would show everyone who was boss with a mighty wind. Wait a minute. Just moments after the wind was at its 
terrifying greatest crescendo. It quickly began to dissipate and fade away. No, it seemed that God wasn't in the wind at all. The wind had stirred everything up and unsettled things, but it had not remade the world as Elijah wished. Elijah grudgingly settled down to wait again for God to arrive. The earthquake, when it started, came on faster than the wind had. The cave and the whole mountain around him were suddenly thrown into complete and utter chaos. He didn't know which way was up, and he was filled with such terror that he was suddenly certain that his God truly was present, that he was angry, and that he had come to murder the prophet. Just moments after he was sure that the whole cave was about to collapse around him, the earthquake ended almost as quickly as it had begun. Elijah felt shaken to his very core, but was surprised to discover that he was still in one piece. Yes, it seemed as if God hadn't been in the earthquake after all and something in the prophet began to build. A suspicion that maybe he didn't really want God to show up after all. Wildfires were apparently not uncommon on this mountain. It was said that Moses himself had encountered God here, in the midst of one. But Elijah had no idea just how terrifying such a thing could be. The fire swept up the mountainside, as if it were a great monster chasing its prey. The heat and the smoke and the very sound of it were all overwhelming. As he fled into the depths of the cave, he felt certain, once again, that he was about to die. Surely God was in the fire. But the fire didn't enter the cave. There must have been some secret vent deep in the rocks because the smoke never grew so thick that Elijah could not draw breath. Eventually, the fire swept on in search of new fuel, leaving nothing but smoldering ashes all around the entrance. And Elijah realized that God had not been in the fire either. But he honestly didn't know whether to be relieved or frustrated. Would God ever come? Did he even really want God to come?
the silence when it finally came was far more overwhelming than anything that had come before. Elijah didn't make the connection, but the silence was likely so deep because the wind, the earthquake, and the fire had chased all the birds and animals away. All that he knew was that he didn't like it. Things had gotten so quiet that for the first time since this whole affair had begun, he was finally alone with his own thoughts. There was nothing to rail at, nobody to fight back against, nothing to run away from. And in the silence, he couldn't help but actually entertain the questions that he had been pushing to the back of his mind all this time. Questions like, had there ever really been a time when all of the people of Israel had been united only in the worship of Yahweh? Would it not be better for everybody if I were to compromise a little and make peace with Jezebel? Is wearing a hairy shirt and a leather belt around my waist really as flattering as I think it is? Am I really doing the right thing by stoking this culture war rather than doing the things that would actually help the starving people? The questions piled up in his mind. Question after question after question until he felt that he might go mad. He felt himself filling with doubts that he had thought he had completely banished. The most terrifying thought of all, however, was the idea that perhaps it was God who wanted him to entertain all of these questions. And suddenly, he knew that it was true. At least it was true that God was in the silence that had made him think all of these things. Elijah ran to the entrance of the cave. No! He cried, no! I refuse these troubling thoughts. I will not entertain them. If Yahweh is in this silence, I will not listen to the disturbing thoughts in it. I will hold on to my complaint. Look, I have been very zealous for Yahweh Elohe Tsebaot, but the people around here have gone woke and forsaken God's covenant. The altars dedicated to Yahweh are deserted. The sanctuaries are falling into disrepair. People are not sacrificing as much, and the prophets of Yahweh are no longer automatically given respect in society. We don't get to do whatever we want anymore. And sometimes, 
when the prophets and priests say things that the society around them finds to be intolerant, they get cancelled. If you can imagine that. Huh. People do things like unfriend them on Facebook and unfollow them on Twitter. Why, these days, it is as if I alone am left. And they are seeking to cancel me too. Elijah wasn't quite sure what he could do. He needed an answer from God. But all he had gotten was that blasted silence. He hadn't liked any of the questions that had come out of that. It seemed that he needed to do something to force God's hand. Something that would stir up. Something more like wind or earthquake or, or fire. That was what was needed to shake things up. God was obviously wrong. He should have been in those things. After he thought about it a bit, though, the answer was just too obvious. If God wouldn't create the chaos, Elijah would have to do it himself. Why, if Elijah were to do something like, say, anoint Hazael as king over Aram, oh, that might really stir things up. Hazael was a high official of the existing king of Aram, but he was well known as a man of great initiative and ruthless violence. If he were prompted in just the right way by a prophet like Elijah, he could be persuaded to mount a coup against his master. And once a man like Hazael had the power of the entire Aramean kingdom behind him, he would be able to build an empire that would sweep through the kingdoms of the Levant, including the kingdom of Israel, like a mighty wind. Yes, yes, that would certainly create some chaos. And if, in addition, Elijah were to anoint Jehu, the official of King Ahab, to become the king of Israel, there would be another military coup as Jehu took over the army and killed his master. That would shake up the kingdom of Israel as much as a terrible earthquake. And what then? Yes, Elijah could also anoint that hothead, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, to be his own successor in the prophetic office. He would be a chaos machine all on his own. It would be as if Elijah had lit a great fire of spiritual revolution in the heart of the nation. If Yahweh was not willing to come in wind, earthquake, and fire, a prophet had his own ways to make it happen. He could use the prophetic authority that he had to create a bit of chaos all on his own. Yes, surely that was it. That was the message that he had truly come to receive in the cave 
he would go and begin sowing chaos immediately. And where exactly was God in all of this? I can't help but feel that he had to be a bit frustrated with what had just happened. The messaging could not have been clearer. God had not shown up in the wind, earthquake, or fire. And yet Elijah had left determined to pursue a course that would only lead to such chaos. God had come in the silence, but Elijah, apparently, hadn't wanted to listen to that. He responded by simply repeating the same complaint that he'd been making all along. And now, Elijah was gone, and the message that God had been trying to impart remained unheard. Surely God could only cry out in frustration towards the retreating back of the prophet. You fool! I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What makes you think that you have to defend me and my honor? I can take care of myself, Elijah. I suspect that Elijah did hear something to that effect as he left. But whether he was really inclined to pay heed to such a message, I am not so sure. As I say, I have long loved the story of Elijah in the cave. This idea of God's sudden appearance to a believer in a time of great need seems so compelling. And I certainly do believe that believers have had incredible experiences of God's presence, and that such experiences have had a great impact on the course of history. But, as I often find while writing these episodes, turning this all into a coherent narrative created some challenges. I had to ask myself, how did Elijah know that God wasn't in the wind, earthquake, or fire? Surely there are many people who have felt themselves to be in the Divine Presence when confronted with such phenomena. How could he be so sure that that wasn't the case? And yet, as I lived through the summer of 2023 with its record wildfires, flooding, and extreme weather, I know that I might be suspecting that somewhere in all of that, God might be trying to say something to us about what we need to change but apparently there are lots of people who are sure that God isn't speaking through such things. 
So I guess Elijah is not alone. And then, even more troubling, God is in the silence. This creates some particular challenges in telling the story. How is Elijah supposed to recognize the presence of God in the absence of something? Even more important, if God is in the silence, then God cannot be speaking. So how is Elijah able to know what God says? There has to be some sort of inner dialogue taking place. And so I took all of that, putting it together with some of the trends that are taking place in my society these days, the various battles of the culture wars that seem to have some resonance with Elijah's complaints, and this was the story that I came up with. I've always admired Elijah, particularly for his principled stand that he takes in the case of Naboth, the Jezreelite. But as I enter into this story, I cannot escape the sense that he just isn't listening, isn't seeing the contradictions between what is really happening and what he wants to happen. I think that happens to all of us at some point. At least, that is how the story spoke to me. How about you? That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks, and do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, and the mood music for this episode was Thunderbird, both by Kevin MacLeod. The news theme was Newsflash 1 by Sasha End. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. As I promised at the beginning, I also dove deep into the deep end of the sound effects archive at zapsplat.com. You can contact me on Twitter or whatever it's called at Retelling Bible and on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.